Welcome back to our growing experiment. We're here with Rob from Verge Permaculture. So Rob, can you tell us about Verge and how you got started? Yeah, so Verge Permaculture is an education company based in Western Canada. And do you want the short story or the long story? Give us the long story. Okay. So I'm a mechanical engineer, but before I became a mechanical engineer, I actually grew up in a giant industrial cake factory. We had a hundred thousand square foot facility, uh, produced, uh, you know, 80 to 90,000 cheesecakes in a day. And so grew up in an industrial food facility. I'm Charlie in the chocolate factory. Um, I then went to engineering, got a mechanical engineering degree and uh, ended up working in the oil and gas industry. So I went into industrial energy after industrial food. Um, and I was getting ready to take down a massive swath of forest, feeling really crappy about it, um, to bring in a new pipeline, uh, a natural gas pipeline to a facility I was designing. And serendipity struck. Uh, and just as I was getting ready to do that, I ended up getting a video called Greening the Desert, which was a video that was produced by Jeff Lawton many years ago now, uh, I guess more than 14 years ago, probably more like 16 years ago, actually. And I said, wow, you know, if this dude is able to actually make the world a better place, which everybody seems to think within the oil and gas industry that we're just going to continue to maintain status quo for the rest of humanity. Uh, I want to do something like him. And uh, so I took my calculator out being a bit of a nerd. And I said, well, the average human lives about 600,000 hours. I've burned through about a third of them. How am I going to spend the, the next two thirds of my life? And so Mich Michelle and I, who's also a mechanical engineer, quit our jobs. Uh, and we traveled around the world for three years and we studied uh, renewable energy in Denmark. Uh, being energy engineers, we could really wrap our heads around how to repower the world. And after leaving Denmark, we felt pretty confident about what renewable energy could do in terms of displacing fossil fuels, at least some of them. And uh, then we hopped into a 1983 Volkswagen bus that we'd converted to run on vegetable oil. And we drove across the US and Mexico, uh, learning everything that we could about ag and how to feed the world. And this concept of permaculture just kept coming up over and over and over again. Uh, and so finally, when we got back from our trip in the van, uh, I ended up traveling to Australia. I spent six, month on, six months on Jeff Lawton's farm. Uh, and then I traveled around to every permaculture farm I could find in Australia. Uh, I went to Jordan. Uh, we traveled right through, through Europe. We traveled through parts of Africa and started to kind of realize that our calling was in educating people to transition to a different way of being because the paradigm that exists and it still exists right now within North America. And I would say within the Western world, probably the whole planet, uh, which pretty much everybody knows, but likely has not put words to is this message that gets pushed out through YouTube and through Facebook and through print media that humans are inherently destructive. And if you kind of run that to its logical conclusion, then we should just, you know, stop being alive. And it's a pretty negative message. Nobody really wants to talk about it because it's so, so negative. But, uh, you know, when you start talking about environmental problems or energy problems or finance problems, um, social problems, uh, everybody's thinking it in the back of their head, but nobody wants to put words to it. And so the thing that really drew us to permaculture was that uh, 
we can be just as good as we are bad. And we're not doing it out of altruism or out of, um, you know, being a goody two shoes. Uh, it's actually in our self interest to protect the ecosystems that we depend upon. Uh, because that's where nutrient dense food comes from. That's where how we can heat our houses. Um, that's how we ensure that future generations actually have a place to um, to be on this earth. And so in 2008, we started Verge. Uh, we've taught literally thousands of students right across the world now, in specifically in the permaculture design course, but also in a number of other kind of adjacent modalities or specific um, practices and techniques that tie nicely into the permaculture design system. <clears throat> okay, so when when you when you were traveling around and you kept seeing this permaculture come up and and when you were asking questions about can you feed the world, one of the criticisms I've heard about sort of permaculture is, you know, it can't really feed the world. The the only way we can feed at scale is the sort of sort of uh, monocropping we do these big these huge farms we do. So what's what's the criticism to that? Well, I would argue that uh, the industrial farming system isn't feeding the world. So it's a non sequitur. Uh, in 19, well, today, you need to eat 10 carrots for every carrot that would have been grown in the 1930s just to get the same nutrition. So we're seeing nutrient collapse occurring globally. Um, We've got roughly 60 cycles of soil left on planet Earth, according to Scientific American. Uh, and so within 60 seasons, we're not going to have any soil left on planet Earth anyways. And so making a claim that permaculture can't feed the world is kind of a ridiculous claim or organic ag or, or whatever modality replaced the word permaculture with any modality that's not industrial ag. Um, but that's just not true. Um, and we can get into the numbers and these are, this is the area that I love to play. Uh, so probably eight years ago, I wrote a blog, which I can give to you guys in an email after this called the grass isn't greener. And I got asked this exact same question by a master's student in Sweden doing a, a master's in urban ag. And he said, he asked the exact same question that you did. And he said, well, I'd love your opinion, Rob, on whether we can feed the world with permaculture. And I said, well, I, I don't really know. And he says, well, I suspect that we can't. And I said, well, what's, what are your assumptions? And he said, well, I don't know. I haven't really thought about that. I'm like, well, you need to create some assumptions if you are going to make a statement like that. And I said, are you assuming that we're going to keep the front lawn? And he said, well, yeah, of course. Of course, we're going to keep the front lawn and we're going to keep the golf courses and we're going to keep the big parks. And I said, okay, well, that's an interesting assumption. I suspect, I didn't know at the time, that uh, the amount of land being grown to front lawn was quite substantial. And, and so I took the conversation, I ended the conversation and I just did a couple of quick um, studies, just, just through some simple Google searches. Turns out we grow almost as much grass in the US as we grow wheat on an annual basis. Um, and if you look at the amount of fuel used to cut that lawn, uh, turns out there's enough fuel to run a Hummer 21,000 times around the earth um, after cutting all the lawn just once. Um, so there's an enormous amount of fuel, enormous amount of herbicide, enormous amount of pesticides and fertilizers. And if we just replace that lawn with wheat, which we wouldn't do, we would grow gardens and food forests and we'd have backyard chickens and all the other polycultural things that are important to make a complete system. But 
just from a reductionist perspective, if we just looked at a single crop, which is wheat, and we used a, an average um, output in bushels per acre, and we translated that onto all the grass in the United States, we could grow a 2000 calorie diet per day for everybody in the US for an entire year off of one crop. We'd all become gluten intolerant, but, um, but we could live off of just the food growing on these lawns. Um, so the amount of land that we're using to do useless things, I'm not saying grass is always useless. It's great to play sports on. It's lovely to throw a Frisbee around, but we all maintain these manicured front lawns as a status symbol that none of us use. And we constantly put money into it. Uh, it's constantly robbing us. We, we put fertilizer in, it grows faster. Um, we use fuel to cut it. And then we send those clippings to the landfill only to turn around and have to refertilize it again. Um, all of these spaces could be transformed into additive things that actually contribute to um, your quality of life, reduce your cost of living, uh, both because you're not cutting the lawn anymore and you're not spending money on gasoline, but you're also putting food on the table um, while increasing the biodiversity of our cities. And we're not even talking about farmland. And so if, if cities actually grew most of their own food, here's another really interesting statistic. If all the land grown to corn, soy, wheat, cotton, whatever the annual crops that are growing in the region that I'm about to talk about. So basically from North Dakota down to the Gulf of Mexico, east of the Mississippi was returned back to perennial pasture, uh, which was grazed by rumen essentially, and, and probably some pigs and some chickens. The U.S. would be carbon neutral overnight without ever having to change any of its behaviors. So you could move your cropland into extensive agriculture to grow all of the proteins. Um, proteins are far better to grow in distance, distant rural lands and then turn intensive systems like the grass into urban farming um, and grow things that are perishable that don't like traveling very far, like kale, tomatoes and carrots. Um, and eliminate the, the brown water in the Mississippi, the dead zones in the ocean, um, and feed the United States with nutrient dense food, with food that's literally traveled the same distance that it used to travel in the 1940s, which is about 30 miles. Yeah, well, that's, that's one of those things like, uh, for us that like we started to undertake, we started growing our own food and stuff like that. Cause we sort of, we, we come to sort of the same conclusions you did in a way, but <clears throat> What, what I'd like to see, I guess, is sort of maybe government stepping in for that kind of incentive. Like when you hear governments talking about wanting to be uh, positive, uh, dealing with carbon uh, problems and stuff like that and dealing with the global warming and dealing with these these crises that were are, are imminent. It sounds like you have real practical sort of solutions that you can kind of get people towards doing, but it does require, I think, that the individual does do more work on their part. Um, I, maybe it depends on the system that you're, you're talking about. I mean, I think a front lawn is not labor free. Um, and you know, we, we set up a front lawn. Uh, we took out our front lawn when we were living in the city. Uh, we're not living in the city anymore. Uh, you know, almost 10 years ago, we put a food forest in there and I guarantee you that I put less time into that food forest than I would have had that continued to be a lawn. So yes, there was more upfront time to plant it. And there were a couple of years where there was some maintenance to get it established. Uh, but we, we regularly produced, you know, 50 to 100 pounds of cherries, 
you know, 20 or 30 pounds of apples, Saskatoon, strawberries, currants, medicinals on a tiny little, what would it be? 50 by 15 feet. So, I mean, call it, call it 600 square feet of, of land. Um, very little labor, um, much less than owning a, a lawnmower and having to cut that lawn. Um, so there's a saying in permaculture that work is just a failure in design. You don't have a, a grasshopper problem, you have a turkey deficiency, or you don't have a slug problem, you have a, a lack of ducks in your system. And so one of the things that people really kind of get attracted to with, with regards to permaculture, it's not that you don't have work in the system, it's that we try and fill the voids or the jobs with efficient design. Um, and, and so I don't really believe that our governments are going to save the day on this one. Um, unfortunately, I'm not holding my breath for any kind of incentive or um, positive programming from a bureaucratic perspective. I do think this has to come from the grassroots, that people have to be incentivized to do this for themselves. And to be honest, there's never been more incentives. I mean, we're dealing with hyperinflation right now where a bag of groceries in Canada costs over $100, um, which was probably $50 just a couple of years ago. Um, we're, we're in the middle of a nutrient collapse. Um, we all saw bare shelves during the pandemic. Um, like I, I can't think of too many more incentives for people to put in that little bit of extra work uh, to ensure that they're, they're actually not going to end up with you know, a disease of affluence, and there's many of them now, um, to ensure that their children grow up strong and healthy, um, and that they've got some level of resilience in this society that we currently currently live in, where there's only three days of food at any given time in, in any city. So do you think part of the reason that people might not be tending to act in that direction, it's probably the case that they don't know, right? And this is probably why you decided to go into education, right? It's like people just don't really know what they actually can do. And like you mentioned how I, I was saying like, well, you know, maybe it's more work. You're saying, well, no, if you integrate these principles properly, you're actually not doing really any more work than you would have been doing. Sure, up front, there is the design and all that kind of thing. But afterwards, you're also getting a return in it's giving you food, which you would have had to go to the grocery store to buy and so on and so forth. So it's, it's a more holistic sort of uh, way of approaching sort of what your, uh, your property is doing and what your problems are. I think some of it's knowledge. Um, I think also to kind of talk about the sorts of things, like we're talking at a very high level right now, but to kind of go down the rabbit hole, which we can go down a little bit if you'd like, but um, and I'm not talking about tinfoil hat stuff, but I'm, I'm just like trying to understand the state of the system. Um, it's not, it's scary. Um, and so like when we see students come through our programs, um, you know, I, I like to say that a permaculture design course is, is kind of like a, a multi-step morning process because you're learning about the fragility of the money system and you're learning about the fragility of the food system and the fragility of the water system and the fragility of the energy system. Like we've built 21st century civilization on top of a, a mound of sand uh, without a very good foundation. And um, when people start to open their eyes to that, it's not pleasant, uh, at least at first. Um, the good news is, is that the solutions are embarrassingly simple and um, if a, a larger percentage of the world did it, a lot of these problems would just 
actually kind of disappear. And, and so a lot of my work is focused around finding these simple wins that allow people to literally stop worrying about this because they're, they're taking control of their situation, at least on a very small uh, level. So I think part of it's education. I think part of it is not wanting to face the situation because um, it's scary. Um, I also think that, that the media does all of us a disservice. Um, well, we do a disservice to ourselves to pay attention to it in the first place, which is why I think podcasts are so amazing. Um, you know, Jordan Peterson said that the podcast was probably more important than the Gutenberg press because the marginal cost of production is super low. You have a reach of millions of people. Um, and with all the garbage that's being produced on all the mainstream media, you've got people like you guys who are trying to seek out real information from people that are at boots on the ground doing real things. Um, and, and so you can present a different narrative so that you don't have to take the narrative that the tell a vision provides you, um, which is, which is super cool. So, um, there's lots of different reasons, but the, the solutions are all, all very similar. Yeah, no, get out there and do something. And, and that, that is something that we've kind of like, like you mentioned as, as you start to sort of look into sort of, uh, food production or ask sort of questions, you do find that there is a lot of fragility built into our system and like, sort of like how how our food system was developed to allow our population to get to the size it's at in the first place, like the way we were using um, industrial sort of uh, the chemical fertilizers we were using, or was we were using, uh, do, do you do you know how we were basically, it's a, it's a nitrogen process. Do you know how we were using fossil fuels to produce fertilizer? Could you explain that? Yep. So uh, uh, nitrogen fertilizer comes from the Haber-Bosch process. The Haber-Bosch process was invented just before World War One, um, and once so Haber and Bosch were the two scientists that invented it. And it's really interesting if you do a Google search after this and you look at all the herbicide names, um, they all have militaristic names to them, um, and that's because all the big ag companies, most of them, that they've all changed their names so many times. But if you tra track the roots back far enough. Um, all the like Monsanto was originally a military company, for example. And so the uh, discovery that nitrogen fertilizer or nitrogen was one of the core plant nutrients came as a result of looking at all the bomb sites after World War One, wherever bombs were dropped because bombs are made out of nitrogen or nitrogen is one of the big components in bombs. You guys remember I think it was. Um, who is the terrorist in the States that blew up that hospital in Oklahoma? Oh, Timothy McVeigh. Was it Timothy McVeigh? Uh, yeah, that sounds familiar. So, I mean, though he made that bomb out of diesel and fertilizer, right? Right. So most of the bombs in world war two were, um, the result of synthetic fertilizer production through the Haber Bosch process. When they saw that bomb sites grew food or plants better than the non bomb sites, they clued into the fact that nitrogen played an, specifically water soluble nitrogen played an important role in the, um, the growth rate of, of plants. So the Haber-Bosch process is where we get nitrogen from. Um, and then a gentleman, a scientist by the name of von Leiberg in the 1830s was the first person to synthesize acid. And as a result of that was able to, um, essentially make phosphorus 
uh, soft rock phosphorus plant available, water soluble. So the Falkland Wars were originally fought over bird guano to, in order to uh, increase the, or, or to get access to phosphorus, both for crops, but also for munitions as well. Um, and then as a result of inventing synthetic acid, they were able to take soft rock phosphorus, run it through uh, a, solu a, uh, a process basically to make it water soluble which allowed them to spray or apply phosphorus to the fields without having to, to use massive amounts of manure. Um, and then potassium comes from potash, which is mined from Saskatchewan and various other places in the world. Um, and that's where we get our NP and our K. Um, and then obviously there's other micronutrients that need to be added if you're trying to take a more holistic approach. All right. And so before before we're doing that, like you mentioned, there's the Falklands War where people are literally fighting over fertilizer access and guano is like a particularly nutrient dense kind of fertilizer. It's 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 bat crap, right? Bird or bat poop. Okay. And it's really high in phosphorus. OK, so and then so basically before they started doing this uh, process, that's derivative of fossil fuels and stuff like that, they're <clears throat> they're doing this. So let's say like uh, bigger farms and stuff like that in Canada and North America, they're probably not using lots of like guano and stuff like that. So what are they doing? They're probably doing something more like what you're probably teaching. Uh, well, big farms in North America, big industrial farms are using industrial fertilizers. I mean, sorry, pre-World uh, uh, pre War II is what I was, what I was oh, sorry, that's what I meant. Yeah. So they would be smaller farms, smaller mixed farms. So they would have mixed livestock systems um, and a percentage of their crop would go to feed their, uh, their livestock. Uh, and they would be hefting manure back into the fields. But there's a really interesting thing that uh, farmers knew before the fossil fuel age. Uh, and it's still kind of, this saying is still kind of bouncing around in our psyche to some degree at least with the people that understand what nutrient cycling is. And the saying is that you should never sell anything off your farm that can't walk off your farm. And so this is the paradox, and I hope I don't offend anybody here, but this is the paradox of um, why vegan and vegetarianism makes no sense in our world. Um, and that is that the inefficiency of the cow, so everybody loves to talk about how bad cows are, how they, you know, they emit, methane and they um, they put you know damaged rivers because of their manure and all of these things but the truth is is that 90% uh, of what a cow eats ends up back on the land and that's only a problem when we raise cows in confined animal feeding operations when you grow a carrot a hundred percent of the nutrients that that carrot accumulates out of the soil ends up in the carrot and if that's grown in Mexico and shipped to Canada, that nutrient is never going back into that soil unless it's applied through synthetic fertilizer. And so vegetables, um, fruits less so, especially from perennial systems, but vegetables and plants, specifically annual plants, should be grown as close to the source or where they're being consumed as possible so that the um, excrement from the people that are consuming them at least has the ability to cycle back into the system. Now with conventional plumbing systems, that's very hard. Um, but if we project forward far enough into the future, peak phosphorus is in 2030. 
Um, so we're literally like seven years away from peak phosphorus, which is the beginning of the end of industrial agriculture. So that's that's the real kind of long and short of it at the end of the day is that like like you mentioned, when you're taking these things out of the ground and you're only putting back in something which is a source that's running out because it's getting too 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 expensive and too detrimental to keep producing fossil fuel because well, there's all kinds of costs associated with it and it's causing damage and, and all of this kind of stuff. So it's it's just you you just can't keep doing what we're doing right now anyways you have to start producing food more locally now the the thing is is like like you mentioned when you look at what that affects the whole system the global trade market kind of falls apart in a lot of ways too like so like let's say we start having way more food production in north america that's more localized i mean now let's say south america where we're say getting a lot of our stuff from and mexico where we're getting a lot of our stuff from in theory, they now have a surplus, which would be good in some ways, because maybe they're experiencing actually a loss. So maybe that would actually help those countries. Or do you have any kind of idea of like projecting forward once we start to change to a more localized, more permaculture type system? I mean, every region is going to have to relocalize. And so if you follow Peter Zeehan right now, he's all over the interwebs. Um, we're seeing a, a massive demographic collapse globally, and we're seeing we're at the very starting phases of a, de-glo- a deglobalization trend, which means that uh, industry, uh, agriculture, um, all the stuff that we're used to flying around the, the globe on airplanes and in tankers uh, are going to start to have to find homes at home, literally. And so the U.S. is going to start seeing a reindustrialization same with Canada, same with Mexico, um, and things are going to start being produced more regionally. And so over time, uh, the economy will adjust. And as there's less demand for kale from Mexico, for example, uh, you know, the Mexicans will start to change their, their cropping or their rotation to be more aligned with what their uh, local comrades want to consume. Um, so that's not really something that I'm too worried about, to be honest. Um, but coming back to kind of global food trends, if we kind of stay at 30,000 feet, uh, in the 1940s, every calorie of food we consumed produced three calories of energy out. So we used a little bit of fossil fuel. We got three calories of energy for, for every calorie of fossil fuel we put into the system. So our, our food was an energy source. Now, our food is an energy sink. And so for every calorie of food we produce, we put 20 calories of fossil fuel into that calorie of food. So if we were all coyotes running around looking for food and we had to invest 20 of our own calories to get one calorie of mouse, we would all starve to death. So fossil fuels running out in the next, uh, we, some people think we've passed peak oil in 2018. Uh, phosphorus, like I said, is uh, projected to peak uh, by 2030. Um, global grain production per capita peaked in 1984. So we've never produced more grain per capita than we did in 1984. And with the Ukraine, Russia crisis going on right now, um, there's, there's actually a nitrogen fertilizer shortage globally, and it will probably last as long as that war does. Um, but the good news is, is that we don't actually like to move to small closed cycle systems like we're talking about 
The phosphorus problem gets solved with mycorrhizal fungi. So um, mycorrhizal fungi can increase the plant surface root area by up to 800 times. So where that plant couldn't go and get phosphorus out of the soil, the fungi can go do it for the plant. And then the plant trades phosphorus for sugar. So the plant produces sugar, the fungi gives phosphorus. And so the same thing would go for nitrogen and for potassium within the soil. Um, we've got nitrogen fixation. Um, and then as small properties start to go back to mixed farming practices, whether it's on the small urban scale or medium rural scale. So we've got the ability now and the knowledge and things like electric fences, which we didn't have 100 years ago, to move animals in really novel and unique ways to cycle uh, nitrogen, phosphorus and potassium. Um, and then the solution to the fossil fuel thing is, is again, we grow our food closer to where we are. Uh, we use less giant tractors. Um, we build human scale systems and use appropriate technology. And so even if the world industrial food system is partially feeding the world right now, like there's still a lot of people that starve to death. Um, there's a lot of people that are actually starving to death and there's lots of people that are starving to death just because they have a malnutrition. I mean, that's why the obesity epidemic in North America is so huge. That's why MS is rising. That's why diabetes is ri rising. Um, so basically human, the, the, your body's telling you you're hungry and when you eat something, there's no nutrition in it. And so it slowly eats itself to death while you get obese. Um, so we're, we're, we're actually seeing a lot, a collapse of a lot of these systems and there's very simple solutions to fix them. Uh, and I think people get overwhelmed by it because they think it's really difficult, but, um, it's just, this is the stuff that our grandparents were doing a hundred years ago. And a lot of us have just forgotten how to do it. Yeah. Like in, in a way, like actually what you're all saying makes me really optimistic because I kind of feel like what is necessary is just going to happen because it'll just become so much more necessary. It's just like, cause I, I've heard that, uh, Peter Zion or Zian or uh, however you say his name there. Um, and I, I, I've, I've heard sort of what he's saying and I've heard other people sort of echo his sort of, uh, ideas where it's like, you know, we just can't keep going the way we've been going and expect things to keep working. If we want our soils to keep producing food, we have to start putting back into our soils and like, it was a thing to me, like I've said for a few years, like it doesn't make any sense to ship food all over the world when you have a place like Canada where we have like like crazy amounts of land. We have all this land and you're like, how can we not feed all the people in Canada right here? And if you just did that, like how much fuel would you save if you didn't have to ship stuff from Mexico? Like it's got to come in every week, right? It's got to come in twice a week. You got to think like, well, if you're not doing that twice a week, that's got to be good. It just seems so, so unnecessary. Right. And then you got to think too, oh, wouldn't we also now have like more need of people to grow that food, which would be a really good job, especially like we know in Canada now, because we have pretty good labor laws and stuff like that. You could have a guy, you know, and, and, uh, work in there su supplying his family, supporting his family, having a, a good dignified job doing something good, producing good food for people in Canada. Like it just makes Absolutely. sense. So it's like, in a way it's like, it, it, I do feel like there'll be growing pains, but I feel like it's kind of the growing pain, right? Well, we will grow. And it seems like hopefully we're trending towards being a little bit more responsible because well, we have to be. 
Yeah, in adversity, there's always opportunity. And, uh, you know, right now, the depends on what part of the news, hopefully you're not watching any news, but, uh, you know, AI is kind of taking a four and the other one is the financial system seems to be struggling quite a bit, which, I mean, if you've been following the global financial system since at least 2008, um, you know, they never really solved the problem. It's just getting worse. And, and so I get a lot of students coming to me saying, well, like, you know, where do I put my money? Do I put it into gold? Do I put it into crypto? Do I put it into, um, you know, where do I put it? And it's really interesting if you can kind of wrap your head around some of the trends that you were talking about here. Um, it's hard to know what the, the currency will become. Like, let's say that we see a, a, a massive economic collapse. Um, similar to what Argentina has been going through for decades. And all of a sudden you can't get money out of your bank and, um, you know, things get really difficult. Um, you know, hopefully if you have silver, silver becomes it. Hopefully if you have gold, gold becomes it. Hopefully if crypto becomes it, you have crypto. The one thing though that you can say will have value um, in a, a, a future economic downturn uh, is food because we eat three times a day. And the other interesting thing is, is that whatever's rare is real and whatever's rare is valuable, which is why people like to go to gold, less than 3% of the population farms. Uh, very few people know how to grow food. And so just practicing in a small backyard, small front yard, community garden, you're building the skill that very few people have that is gonna be potentially hyper valuable. And so, and I would call this an asymmetric option because let's say the financial collapse never happens and you've spent time as a hobby gardener learning how to grow food. There's no downside risk. It's like you got better food, you got vitamin D while you were out there. You probably improved your microbiome because your hand was in the soil. Um, so all those are upsides. Yes, you spent some time doing it, but the, but you got something out of it. It wasn't like watching Netflix where by the end of the movie, you're feeling like you got ripped off because it was such garbage. <laughs> um, so you actually get something out of it. And then if things do get bad, which which I, I don't like to make predictions because I think predictions are for charlatans. There's no, the chance that our predictions come true is very small. Um, but we can we can absolutely look at the fragilities of all these systems that we're talking about, whether it's food, energy, water, shelter, um, how our waste gets managed. Uh, and we can say, well, what are the things that I can do um, if all, none, or some of them are true um, that benefit me if none of them happen and really benefit me if some of them happen? And so we call these asymmetric options. So like storing a year's supply of food cuts your cost per calorie down because you're buying in bulk forces you to eat whole foods because you got to cook from base materials. Um, and then if something bad happens, you've got, you've got a good food supply, right? Gardening, same thing. Like it's really inexpensive to garden. You get a skill out of it. You get to go outside, you get vegetables at the end of it. Um, and now you've gained a new skill. And so these problems, and this is one of the reasons that I think people get stuck is that they're so huge. They, they owe like climate change. It's like, what are you going to do with all the information that they throw at you every single day about climate change? Other than like medicate yourself, you know, like it's just so depressing um, that, that there's like, it just shuts you down. It's, it's like, well, 
you know, and like name any issue, whether it's social, environmental, um, industrial, every single one of them is just like this giant bag of dog crap that they just put on you. And it just makes you so depressed that you don't want to do anything except, you know, smoke weed and watch Netflix. Um, and, and, and like, it, I mean, that pretty much describes the mental state of the world right now. Um, at least in North America is like people are, are hopeless. And so they just kind of, it's like right out of 1984, you know, it's like just medicate themselves and put themselves to sleep so they don't have to actually think about it. But if they could just know that just, just over the hill there, there's a group of people like you guys, like us out here that are eating better food, they're having more fun. Um, they're healthier, um, it's, it's just a better way of living. And I think that's what we really have to get across is that this isn't a sacrifice to do this. I'm not doing this because I'm scared. Um, I have benefits that, that help me like create insurance policies in the event some of these things go wrong. But it's actually better over here. Like our food is just amazing. The communities that surrounds us is unreal. Um, and anybody can go get this. It's so easy to set this stuff up whether you live in a city or a rural area, you just got to start doing it. Yeah. Like, and, and the way, the way that you're saying it too, it, like, I kind of feel like we're just, uh, we're just kind of the early, the early people into it. Like, it's just, it's this, like, this is just going to be a thing that people get into. And I hope that we do see like a, a trend towards that. Like, dis despite there might be like, say bad things to some of the fitness influencers in some ways, there's an upside where maybe there was a lot more people going to the gym and being active where they might've been not getting active, you know, even though there's negative, whatever comes along with that, it might be kind of cool to see like, cause I, I know it's kind of cool when Sophia shows me new Instagram profiles she finds with basically like, I don't know if you want to call them farming influencers, but there's cool people out there that are like, out there running little farms, producing food and stuff like that. And they're like, oh yeah, by the way, this is a cool thing I didn't know last year that I learned. And this will save you all kinds of a headache and this, 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 and this. And it's just, and it, it's cool because it's, they're just people like you and me. And you believe that you can do it because you're like, well, they're just like you and me. And then once you, once you start getting doing it too, that's the thing too. Once you start doing it, that's, that's the actual knowledge. It's actually doing it not reading the book. That's all theory. That's all kind of this abstract thing. Once you start actually doing it and dealing with whatever your soil is and whatever your actual situation where you're trying to grow something is, that's where you can actually start to learn something. And it's like, it's like you said, people get intimidated, but it's like, just grow like two tomatoes, grow two tomato plants, try that out. If you can handle that, grow some potatoes or something, you know, like you can, you can work out a little better, get like a flower box, you know, do one row, you can get into it. So in, in that kind of way, like, is that some sort of route you would say if you wanted to get someone into, um, someone getting into gardening on a small scale, maybe they're an urban person or a suburban person, like sort of like us, and they're just wanting to get started. How do you say getting started? And how do you say like getting them tending towards maybe permaculture type values? Yeah, just, I mean, simple experiments like you suggested are fantastic. Uh, when we were living in Calgary, we had a cob oven in our backyard and, and so we, a pizza oven basically, and, uh, we'd have these open yards and we'd, we'd invite people into our, into our life for, you know, an evening and we'd get anywhere from 30 to a hundred people rolling through these open yards 
and you know i'd make all the dough and we'd make some sauce and stuff and i i can cook a pizza in about 30 seconds out of the cob oven so i was just flipping them out like as fast as people could consume them and people would go wander through the garden and they would get some basil or some tomatoes um and you should see the like people get it it's like wow i picked that out of rob's garden he cut it up and put it onto a pizza and fed it to me like three minutes later and it just tastes so good um it's like i want to do that i want i want an outdoor kitchen i want to have a garden in my backyard i want a cob oven um, i want to host progressive dinners with my friends uh in progressive meaning um like it, it's kind of cool. We we did this once where we kind of went from yard to yard. We had it was a, a true progressive dinner where we moved from one cob oven to another. Um, and we just ate this like really long meal um, in multiple places, multiple permaculture backyards. And so I like to say that, um, you know, bees are attracted to honey, not to vinegar. And so we literally just have to make it more fun. We got to make it taste better. Uh, we really have to appeal to people's better nature and show them that l abundance is definitely possible. You just need to learn a few new skills that you may not have learned from your parents. Um, and there's lots of really great courses and programs out there to get you started. And then there's tons and tons of YouTube videos on YouTube University, podcasts like this one, um, and then community groups where you can go and ask questions. Uh, like the internet has, has created an incredible infrastructure to facilitate co-learning with other people so it's a great time to get into it yeah and as you were saying that it just made me think about how we were talking about how people just feel so hopeless right now and just bringing i think community is part of like all of this right it's not just going and gardening in your own, own backyard doing it just for yourself that's a piece of it but like really building a community that's part of it like even for us, we were in the city, so we're not, we don't have animals, that kind of thing. So, okay, we can grow our own vegetables. Okay, let's know our farmers. Let's go see our farmers and get our meat from them, right? It, it's knowing who's in your community and working together at the end of the day, right? Absolutely. You know, it's interesting with all the courses that we've taught, people come for the information, but they leave with the community. And it's really hard to try and convince somebody to take a program to, to join a community, but that's really what we're doing. We're secretly, you know, giving them people in their neighborhood that they can work with. Um, and uh, yeah, community, you know, is the most important thing I would say. I mean, yes, you need the skills, but without other people to share it with or to learn from, um, you know, we are fundamentally a community species. And it's part of, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like <clears throat> once you've met your basic needs in order for you to be a healthy, stable human being, you need to surround yourself with good people. Um, and what's crazy about the permaculture space is I can travel to any country in the world, find fellow permaculturists, instantly have a community and probably find a free place to stay no matter where I end up on this earth. Uh, Mollison said that uh, there's more people, more permaculturists globally than there are UN workers on the ground. None of them expecting a wage, all just doing their work silently in the background. Uh, we're, we're unmatched now as far as numbers are concerned. And uh, yes, some of us are on YouTube, but a lot of us aren't just doing the work behind the scenes.
Well, and that kind of makes me think of, um, and I think this is something that used to exist a little bit, but like say a gardener's guild kind of thing, right? Where you could actually have like exactly how you're saying with the permaculture thing, people get together to learn permaculture and they end up finding the community. Once you get that and you go back to your home community and say, if you do have a few people that are connected with you, maybe you create like your own club locally, right? And that's like a community garden or some variation of that. And you get other people involved with it, right? And then, yeah, that's how it kind of really it outgrows, right? And and what you're saying too, it's the way it really works is have <laughs> have better food being like it's like it's just a better time over here, like you're saying, right? Like no, the grass is greener. We're all over here working together, growing our own food, and 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 it it, it kind of in a way it's like um, you're what I like about it is if you get people if you just show them the benefit of it, they choose to do it. Because that's the thing is like, I, I hate it when people get these ideas with like, we're going to make someone do this, or we're going to make someone do that. It's like, no, no, no. It's like when you have something that's actually good or worth doing, you can usually just show somebody you're like, look at this. And they're like, oh, well, that's, that's better. Like the first guy to come along and figure out how to develop like a lever, right? He's like, no, if you if you, you put this like log in here, and you pry on that, you can move the rock. You don't have to push on it like mm -hmm. that. He's like, oh, well, thanks. He didn't keep pushing on the rock, right? So yeah. you got to show them what the lever is. The lever is, is like, actually, the food can be close here. The food can taste better. The health problems that you have might be something because the food that you're eating is basically sick. You know, if you eat healthy food, you'll be healthier. If you're healthier, mm -hmm. we won't need to spend so much money on healthcare because we'll be healthier. We don't have to worry about totally. sickness because we're taking care of ourselves. So, yeah. you know, it, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, just demonstrate it. And, um, and I think the, you know, it's, it's scary to kind of think about um, getting governments to force people to do certain things. I mean, I think we live in a, well, I'm pretty sure we live in a free country, um, I guess to be debated uh, as of some recent events, but, um, uh, you know, the, the, we need people to, to come to this on their own, they need to want to do it, they need to have their own insights. Um, and so that's what the saying comes from that when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Um, people are waking up to this and COVID was a, a you know, a blessing in disguise uh, in that it um, really woke people up to what happens when supply chains start to break down. And hopefully people will start realizing that it's actually not a supply chain that we need. We need a supply web. And as people start to grow their own, as people start to take care of themselves within communities, we end up with less of a centralized system that's easy to break and more of a web that's harder to break because we have distributed production and consumption um, within our countries. And I suspect what's gonna happen, and we kind of saw the first wave of this at the beginning of COVID, is that, um, You've got early adopters like you've you've mentioned, and when when things really shut down, you know we saw a massive uptick in registrations in our programs. Um, you know what's the next thing to break? Is it the financial system? Is it some of the fertility fertility systems we've talked about? Is it a lack of soil? Um, what's going to happen is we're going to just kind of be twiddling our thumbs, doing what we've been doing for all these years, and all of a sudden there's going to be another wave, and it's just going to get the waves are going to get bigger and bigger because we don't know when 
these systems are going to break. Um, like that's that's the prediction piece that we were just talking about. But we can definitely say that the systems that we depend upon are fragile. And, and when a system is fragile, it, it means that it doesn't benefit from volatility. Uh, like if you ship a wine glass across the country, you have to put a label on it that says fragile, handle with care. Most of the systems we have to handle with care. But if we think about an anti-fragile system, which is the opposite of a fragile one, if you were shipping an anti-fragile element across the country, the, the label would say, please shake me, please harm me, um, because anti-fragile systems actually benefit from volatility. And the best example of that is a human body. When you lift weights, if it's the right amount, you get stronger. And so when we design systems in webs um, and networks and communities, uh, like local food systems and local food webs, these systems actually respond positively when negative things happen. And so we need to surround ourselves with systems that improve when volatility emerges. Uh, so houses that have renewable energy systems with backup power uh, become more valuable when you have power shortages or ice storms. Um, people that know how to garden in the good times their skill sets become highly valuable when there's food shortages. Um, and so we can think about this concept of anti-fragility in everything that we do um, and, and how we design our systems, our homes, our farms, our communities. Um, we should be designing them so that they actually are, um, they're going to benefit from the volatility that's just ahead, even though we don't know exactly when it's going to happen. Yeah, and with the with the way that you're talking about that too, and how I understand the ideas in permaculture works, like say when you you mentioned like say oh you have a, a, a snail infestation, it's like no no no, you need something else to come in here to eat that. It's actually you have another another input possibility, and then I think yeah. I, I don't know what the example you mentioned it was some kind of uh, poultry or something like that, right? Yeah, well, it's, uh, when you have a snail problem, you have a duck deficiency. Right, right. Okay, so then that kind of thing, right? You bring in a duck. And you think like, well, that's awesome. Now you have another potential food source. They also produce eggs, that kind of thing. And so that's actually a good thing when you're looking to have, again, a diversified sort of uh, menu and all that. And it, it's like, it, it's kind of like interesting and fun that like when you want to have like a healthy, dynamic uh, food production system, it needs to be dynamic. And it's cool because then the menu ends up being kind of dynamic too which is also nice as a human who kind of enjoys having that variety of that palate and stuff like that. Cause you kind of, yeah. you, you think like, or, or maybe people might associate farming with sort of traditional old way things, right? Where everything was bland, you had to eat just for sustenance and all this kind of stuff. But with the, a sort of a, a little bit of planning and stuff like that, you can kind of get a little bit of everything. Right. And it just requires, we all kind of do that a little bit. So like, what would be like kind of core uh, permaculture principles? Is, is there like a sort of list of those that people could kind of like go to to think about? Yeah, I mean, you can Google it and you'll find lists of them uh, and they're all really great. But there's really just a few of them that that we can talk about probably in the time that we've got left. So one of them is this concept of relative placement. And so one thing that happens, whether it's urban or rural, it happens pretty much every time I consult on a project. Um, people will put their compost really far away. 
and then they'll call me and they're like, oh, my compost stinks. And it's like, well, it stinks because you suck at it. Um, but do you know why you suck at it? Because you put it far away. Because if you put it close to where you were and you had to smell that every single day, you'd learn how to compost. Um, or they'll put their vegetable garden really far away and they're like, oh, it's too much work to, to manage my vegetable garden. And it's like, well, if you're going there every day, why don't you put it closer to where you live? Um, and so we're all very, um, humans are intrinsically uh, capable of design because every single one of us have, has walked into somebody's house and said, wow, why would they design their kitchen that way? Or why would they design their bathroom that way? That's that's not a very efficient way to design something. We don't say it because we're polite and we're Canadian. We probably apologize to them. Um, but um, the thing that I like to kind of, or the principle that I think is really valuable that a lot of people have a lot of insights around is this concept of relative placement. So we would never put a fridge in our attic, a sink in the kitchen, and our stove in the basement. You'd never be able to cook anything. But when we design our properties, people don't think about time and motion and work triangles, um, and they just kind of place things everywhere. And we get into rural environments, uh, people get drunk on space, and they just put stuff everywhere. Um, and so it's not uncommon for us to map out the path that people walk on a day-to-day -day basis. And uh, when we add up the number of meters they're walking per day and we extrapolate that out over the year, it's literally thousands of kilometers, even on small properties. When they could literally shrink that down into a really small footprint um, and inevitably people will say, well, it's good exercise. It's like, well, yeah, but wouldn't you want to go hike in the mountains or go mountain biking or canoeing? Like get your chores down to the smallest possible thing that you can do because work is a failure in design. And so that you can enjoy other parts of your life and you're not feeling like you're in this drudgerous work loop trying to maintain a system that was poorly designed. So relative placement is really important um, within how we place elements on a property. <clears throat> and then within that, we can actually create relative placement within those elements as well. And so um, you kind of started hinting at the additional yields that you get when you get things located properly. Well, instead of my compost going into my compost bin, I could first feed it to, to chickens and then the chicken manure can go into my compost bin or I could feed it to worms and then the surplus worms can be fed to the chickens and then the manure from the chickens can go into the compost bin. And so yield is technically almost unlimited um, because we can always create new yields by creating new cycles. And so this is a principle called needs and yields, where we can look at every element and, and the needs of every single element and the yields of every single element, and we can look for opportunities to connect them. So permaculture is not about the roof, the rain barrel, or the solar panel, but the connections between them that counts. So every time we create a new connection, we create a new yield. Every time we create a new yield, our system becomes more, to use your word, dynamic, um, becomes more stable. It, there are more outputs um, and it gets better. And so we, we use this concept of needs and yields and relative placement to make sure that not only do we get place the garden in the right place, but we place the ducks relative to the garden um, or the chickens relative to the garden so that they can uh, create value for us. And then there's the concept of time. Time is another place that we can add edges and yields. 
and I'll give everybody a story here and we'll, we can probably stop there, but there's, there's literally probably 20 of these different ideas that we could go through. But I had this friend of mine, he was growing chickens and he had a, a massive slug infestation. And most of the times chickens and gardens don't go well together because if you let a chicken out into a garden, they'll eat it. Um, but chickens are very, very interesting animals because they, um, they literally work like clockwork. And so they will go back into their coop every night, like clockwork, just a few minutes, like they can measure the sun with their eyes. And so as the, the days get shorter, they go, go to their coop a little bit earlier. And if you are observant enough, then you will notice on your clock that they're so consistent. They're like to the minute um, you can time when they're going to go back into their coop. And so he said, well, what if I let my chickens out into my garden 10 minutes before they wanted to go back into their coop? What would happen? He didn't have much to lose because he was losing everything to slugs. Well, the chickens rampaged the slugs, but left all the vegetables behind because they knew they had 10 minutes left before it was their bedtime and they wanted to go for the protein. And so in addition to getting new production out of how you design space, we can also get new production opportunities by how we design time. Um, and so we're looking to mimic ecosystem processes in the way that we grow everything, whether it's food, energy, water, shelter. And our, our best ideas come from observing nature and being present in the moment and taking time to and, and, and being curious. Like one of the best skills that you can have as a permaculture practitioner is curiosity. Well, why does that happen? Why does that happen? Usually after the third or fourth or fifth, why? Do you guys have kids? Yeah. So, you know, like when your kids are, are growing up, they just like, well, why and why and why and why? And I always have to stop my kids after about the fifth why, because the, after the fifth why, we have to explain things through string theory. And I don't know string theory very well. <laughs> so if you if you back up one level from string theory, you usually get to a root cause that that's useful on planet Earth. Um, and so having a curious mind to ask why is so, so valuable. And I could tell stories about that all day, like super interesting things that we derive from nature, um, to create directives in the way that we grow food or all the other stuff that we do. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And like you mentioned, you could, you could talk all night about it, but thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk to us. We appreciate it so much. And uh, if people want to get a hold of you and start learning some permaculture principles and get trained by you guys, how do they go about doing that? So just head over to our website, vergepermaculture.ca. We've got uh, all sorts of blogs, uh, our YouTube channel. I think we have over 700 videos on YouTube now uh, and constantly producing more. Uh, we're on Instagram, I believe, and Facebook. Um, so any of those channels, uh, you can find out what, what's going on uh, in our life. And uh, we actually have an upcoming permaculture design course here starting in May. So if people want to uh, take this on uh, over this growing season, it's a great time to get involved. All right. Perfect. Well, thank you again very much. Yeah, great. Thanks so much, Rob. Thanks.